After uh, 20 months of, of forced sabbatical due to COVID, we finally have our sanctuary choir back. I want to you join me in thanking them for being here. Uh, many of you may not know what they've been doing over these past 20 months, but uh, for months our choir has been coming out uh, one time every six weeks or so on a Wednesday night and recording hymns for our online traditional service, which we make available to those who, who want to watch traditional worship but can't come out to services on Sunday. And sometimes that would mean on a, on a single Wednesday night they would record 18 hymns, six weeks of services, and sing them with gusto and passion. And, and so they were working all throughout this time. You just couldn't see them up here in front, but it's great to have our choir uh, back with us, helping us uh, lift our worship up to our God. We also have a little video for you to watch. Many of you were able to, to join us for our stadium service back at the end of August as we finished the summer and launched our fall season. So take a look as we remember back uh, what God did on that day. I hope seeing those faces come out of the water blesses you as much as it does me. A great day. Over 100 people took the step of baptism that day. First time I've seen that video, I didn't know it would hit me like this, but very, very, very powerful, very much fun. Well, my first job in ministry um, was as a part-time youth pastor at a church in Glen Ellen while I was working my way through seminary. And since I was brand new to any kind of formal ministry, even though I'd grown up in the church, um, I got most of my ideas by uh, talking to other youth pastors and, and reading whatever books I could find since it was in the pre-internet days, sort of like back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. But one of the ideas that I came across in those days was something called a planned famine. It was an event designed to help students um, learn about uh, the rest of the world, how the rest of the world lives, particularly in the developing world, uh, the poverty-stricken areas of the world. And so the event was where you'd bring uh, students in for a retreat, but they would eat only uh, the food that, that people in many parts of the world eat every day. Uh, maybe, maybe a bowl of rice 
and a scrap of bread and some, and some, uh, some water. And that was it uh, for the retreat. Uh, so I decided that was a great idea. Uh, so I decided to plan a retreat called a planned famine. Only I thought the event would have much more impact on these students if I surprised them with the famine part. Does that sound like a good idea to you? So here's how it went. Students showed up at church, maybe 15 or 20 of them, high school students, all excited for an overnight, you know, uh, lock-in at the church, we used to call it. And then once I gathered them together, I, I surprised them with the news that we would not be eating pizza and ice cream throughout the evening, which is usually the case at a youth event. I told them you would not, there would be no food at all the first night until the morning when I would graciously give them a bowl of charred rice and a little bit of bread. And as you can imagine, that did not go very well. You would have thought I told them I was going to waterboard them all night in some strange form of torture. By about 9 p.m. that first evening, they got there at about 6 or 7. So just two hours into the event, I had a full-scale mutiny on my hands. A couple of these young boys actually staged a breakout. They snuck away from the group, went to the basement of the church and broke a window, escaped out the window, and ran to a local drugstore and bought candy bars for the, for the whole group. Uh, I don't think they learned a thing about world hunger in that retreat. And I was pretty sure I was going to get fired the next day after they talked to their parents. But I learned a couple of important lessons. I learned, first, surprising kids with an unplanned famine is not a good idea. Secondly, I learned that food matters. That without food, a crowd can very quickly turn into an angry mob. And that leads us into our, our message today. We're in a series from the Gospel of Mark. You have your Mark journals. We've been wor working our way through uh, this great gospel. Uh, the shortest of the gospels. It's the most, uh, most fast-moving of the gospels and probably the first gospel written. Uh, and the other gospels sort of took their information from Mark, who got his information from the Apostle Peter. Uh, but we're, this is where we've been. Last week, Pastor John was preaching from uh, Mark chapter 5, how, where Jesus cast the demons out of the demoniac, how he heals a woman who just reached out and touched his garment. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, just demonstrating his authority over demons, disease, and even over death itself. And then in chapter 6, the portion of the chapter we are not covering in this sermon, uh, we see that Jesus has been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, you just wrap your mind around that. He's been casting out demons. He's been ra he even raised the dead. But when he goes back home, he's rejected. People say, well, that's just the carpenter's son. And then John the Baptist, his cousin, is executed by King Herod. And then Jesus sends the disciples out on a kind of a mission trip. Now, this may have been because they were finally ready for some real hands-on ministry, practical experience. It might also have been, as I think about it, because Jesus needed some time, perhaps to grieve the death of his cousin. But Mark tells us he sends his disciples out two by two and gives them spiritual authority to minister in his name. We're going to talk about that uh, more in just a moment. We don't know exactly how long the assignment lasts, days or weeks, but evidently it's a significant amount of time and some very significant ministry takes place as well. So that leads us into the passage we're going to look at today, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. Mark writes, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Now, a couple things as we start. This is the only miracle story, apart from the resurrection, to appear in all four Gospels. So evidently, it was quite significant among the apostles. Uh, most people, even people who don't regard themselves as Christians, who don't know much else about the Bible, recognize at least parts of this story, the feeding of the 5,000. And most of you probably learned this story in Sunday school when you were very young. But I think when we really dig into it, God will have just a couple of surprises for us here today. The first thing we see in the story, I think, is the king's care. The king's care. Uh, during my first couple of years as youth pastor here at uh, Chapel Street, formerly First Baptist of Geneva, I became friends with another youth pastor in the, in the area. Uh, he was a great guy, uh, loved students, and was just full of great ideas and passion for student ministries. Uh, one fall, right about this time of year, he had planned uh, his major outreach event of the year. It was going to be a, a big concert-type event. He had hired this well-known band. He had put up uh, banners in front of all the local high schools, uh, signs and, and advertising everywhere, and he was looking for two to 300 students to attend. There, there was a large church, and they had a large ministry. So um, he had, we talked about this event for months, and I was kind of curious how it would go. So on the night of the event, I wanted to support him because I knew he was under... He was under some real pressure from his uh, senior pastor and their leadership to produce big numbers. That's why he was having this event. So I knew it was important to him, so I decided to go and see how it went. I took seven or eight of our own kids from our ministry uh, just to watch how the event went. So we got to the venue <coughs> that was in the local area. There were floodlights you know, going around and banners, and we walked in the building. We could, we could hear the band just pumping out popular tunes. It was, just, it was loud. And then, but when I got into the room, and it was kind of dark, I looked around, and there weren't hundreds of students there. In fact, I think I counted there were 18, and seven or eight of the more kids I had brought to the event. And I immediately knew what my friend was feeling, because sooner or later it happens to every youth pastor. After all the effort and all the planning and all the advertising and all the hype, the kids just they don't show up. They're doing something else. And I knew what he was feeling was failure. Failure and embarrassments. So I stood next to him for just a few minutes, and then I, I tapped him on the shoulder. I said, hey, hey, don't worry about the numbers. Nights like this just happen. The kids who are here are going to have a great time. Don't worry about it. He didn't hear a word I said. He turned to me. With, with a deep kind of sadness. I'll never forget the look on his face. And he said, 
this is the worst night of my life. The sadder thing is that two months later, he resigned his position at that church and left ministry altogether. Never went back to this day. I've always believed that what my friend needed most was not the pressure to succeed, not to produce results, but rather to remember who had called him into ministry and to know how to find rest and restoration from Jesus himself. That's what Mark's talking about here, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Okay, so Jesus had sent them out to do ministry, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to preach the gospel of repentance. And we don't know much about what their experience was like. We don't know how long it lasted. Uh, We don't know how well they were received. If we look at how Jesus received, remember, he was just rejected in his own hometown. We know he was being questioned by the religious leaders and criticized. We know some in his own family thought he was crazy. So it was probably a mixed bag for the disciples as they went out two by two. Here's how Mark describes it earlier in chapter 6. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there till you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake, the dust, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So I think we can make a reasonable guess that this was a challenging, exciting, and sometimes exhilarating time of ministry for these disciples. They came back full of stories to tell Jesus. I think stories both of success and stories of rejection. They came back filled with excitement and what God had done. But also I think they came back physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. That's why Jesus invites them to come away with him to a desolate place. Now, to us this sounds a bit, I don't know, depressing. Desolate is a strange word to us. But if we understand the word, it's kind of just the opposite. The word is eremos in the Greek. And it means a quiet place, a solitary place, a place kind of away from everything else. And we know throughout the Gospels that Jesus often withdrew from ministry and from his disciples to a solitary place, eremos. In fact, if you go to the Sea of Galilee today, there is a place called the Eremos Cave. Uh, Pastor Jeff and I were able to visit this spot a few years ago when we traveled to the Holy Land. Uh, there's a cave up, just up from the Sea of Galilee, and many scholars believe this might actually be one of the places where Jesus withdrew for his own personal prayer and restoration with the Father. You can climb up into that cave, and here's the view looking out of the cave over the Sea of Galilee. So as we sat there, we could sort of think, that this, this makes sense. This might be where he came just to reflect and to pray. It was a place of rest, and the word is anapao, and that means to take a break from intense labor. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. That same word. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, I read that and I think of our 
Chapel Street kids staff and all the volunteers it takes to uh, run, say, VBS for a week. And they get to the end of the week and they're tired. They're exhilarated, but they're tired. Jesus wants to give them rest. I think of our student ministries and all the volunteers that, that put, take on a whole summer of mission trips, all different parts of the country and even around the world. I think of our women's ministry staff and their volunteers and all the administrative staff here at church with the launch of all the fall ministries and all the stuff that has to go on. I think back to the days when I was going back and forth preaching five sermons on one Sunday morning. I think of uh, the, my youth pastor friend on the worst night of his life. And what Jesus wants to offer all of us is rest. Because ministry is exciting, it's fulfilling, it's even exhilarating at times, but it can be hard. It can be hard. Even those called to ministry, even those passionate about the gospel can get weary and discouraged. And so Jesus understood this. He understood the rhythm that God had built into all of creation itself, the rhythm of work and then rest. Work and then rest. And he modeled this for his followers by often going off to his own quiet place his Eremos cave, to rest and be restored by the Father. Jesus understood that the work he had called them to do was hard and draining, sometimes dangerous. And so he offers them rest, rest. He offers us the same rest. You remember a couple of weeks ago when we saw what Jesus taught about the Sabbath, when he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the point of that teaching was that Jesus in himself is our Sabbath rest. So he invites us to come away by ourselves, with him, to rest a while. That's the care of our king. Secondly, we see in the story the king's compassion. King's compassion. Uh, Some time ago, years ago now, I was invited to share a short devotional at a national gathering of our denomination, which then was called the Baptist General Conference, now is called Converge Worldwide. And the conference was held at Bethel Seminary, excuse me, Bethel University up in um, Minneapolis. And the keynote speaker was one of the most uh, well-known, famous pastors in America at the time. So just for a few minutes that day, uh, I shared the platform with this, uh, this very famous pastor, but I did not get to meet him personally. So after the, the session where I spoke for like five minutes and he spoke for over an hour, I had to walk out to the parking lot to get something out of my car. As I got to the parking lot, I turned, and he was right there, like not 20 feet away, walking out toward his car. And I reckon I was just the two of us in the parking lot, perfect chance to maybe make a little connection, meet somebody that was well-known, successful. I'd heard him preach many times. Uh, so I looked at him and said, hey, thanks for today, heading out. And he kept walking, looked up and said, yep. And in that moment, I could see on his face, he, he looked tired He looked kind of drawn, and everything about his face, his tone, and his demeanor said, please don't try to start a conversation with me. Please don't take a step closer. I'm tired. I'm done. Not one more person, not one more conversation, not one more contact. So I just nodded and let him go. But I understood that. I understood that. I would love to have chatted with him just for a minute. But I got the message loud and clear. I understood. Mark says in in verse 33, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like a sheep. They were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now try to imagine this scene so you really catch what's going on here. Jesus is likely still grieving the death of his cousin. 
John the Baptist, beheaded by King Herod. His disciples are weary from what was likely several weeks of walking from village to village, uh, probably sleeping on the ground with little food and little sleep. Jesus invites them to come away for a time of rest and relaxation and restoration. They're getting away to the mountains for a few days alone. So they get into the boat to sail across the Sea of Galilee to a desolate place, meaning a place where they can be alone, away from people. But the crowds see them getting into the boat, see what they're doing, and they guess where they're going, and the crowd starts to go on foot around the lake. Now, uh, scholars think that the, 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 the boat path across the lake was only three or four miles across the water, but depending on current and wind, it could take a little longer. The path to go around the lake was as long as maybe 10 miles, but that's what the people do. They walk, they run. Mark says they ran there on foot and arrived ahead of the boat. So when their boat finally gets to the desolate place, guess what? It's not desolate anymore. There's a whole crowd of people just waiting for them on the shore. Now, two things we should notice here. First, notice Jesus' response. He's trying to get away with the disciples. He's promised them rest. They're going on a spiritual retreat. But instead of getting away for some rest, their boat docks right into a great crowd waiting for them. What would be, I thought of this this week, what would be my response? I would be a little bit like that pastor I saw in the parking lot, I think. I'd be like, come on, people. Give, give, give me a break. We're tired. We came here just to be, just come back tomorrow. Just go home. Come back tomorrow. I'll be glad to see you then. Nope. Mark says he had compassion on them. Jesus sees the crowd, and he's not irritated. He isn't put out. He's not frustrated. He doesn't shake his head and say, these people. He has compassion. And the word for compassion here is interesting. It means to be moved in the inward parts. A feeling in one's gut. Then we have to ask ourselves, why does Jesus feel such compassion in that moment? Mark says, because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Because Jesus is a shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. In John chapter 10 we read, So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus knew that sheep without a shepherd are lost. He knew that sheep without a shepherd won't find pasture. Sheep without a shepherd are defenseless against predators and thieves. He knows that sheep need a shepherd. He also knows that all these people have walked and run all the way around the lake because even if they couldn't say it in these words, they're looking for a shepherd. They need someone who will tell them where they should go, tell them where they can find hope, who will tell them the truth about God and themselves. And Jesus is a shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And what does a good shepherd do? Mark says, and so he taught them many things. He knows what they need most to hear is the good news. So he teaches them the word of God, his word. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And what he's saying is that without the word of God, without the truth about God, without the truth about ourselves, without the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, without the love and guidance of the good shepherd, we are lost and in danger. That's why here at Chapel Street we dig into God's word every Sunday. That's why we challenge you over and over again to take your own Bible, to take your Mark journal, and to read the Word, to look at it, to learn it, to memorize it, to study it, because without the Word of God, we are not fed, and without being fed, we become like sheep without a shepherd. That's the compassion of the king. The third thing we see in the story is the king's command. Mark uh, 6.35. And when it grew late... His disciples come to him and say, said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii? Now, how much was that? A 200 denarii is roughly uh, a little over half a year's wages for a working person. That's a lot of money. Worth of bread and give it to them to eat? They're kind of thinking Jesus hadn't done the math on the whole thing. And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded all of them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And in taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And, of, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men couple of things to see here first. The disciples see clearly that there is a problem developing. Uh, it's, there's a huge crowd, 5,000 men and many more women and children, one can assume. Um, it's, it's getting late. It's been a long day. The people haven't had anything to eat, and they haven't had anything to eat. And it's a desolate place. It's a lonely place. There's nothing to ride around. Secondly, the disciples have um, identified a solution to the problem they've seen. Uh, send these people home. Send them back to their villages. Send them back to the local towns where they can get something to eat. And then we can maybe get some rest and something to eat. Now this, I want you to see, is a perfectly reasonable response. The disciples aren't being callous. They aren't being unfeeling. They're trying to help, right? Send these people home. It's getting late. There's no McDonald's around here. Not a Wendy's within sight. They need to eat. So in a sense, the disciples... Uh, have a plan that they would like Jesus to implement. And it strikes me that this is often also the way that we can pray sometimes. We see what we think is a problem, and it might be, and we see what we think is a reasonable solution, and so that's what we pray for. That's what we ask God to do for us, to do our plan, to put it into play, because it makes sense to us. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're invited to do that. We do that every week. But there's actually also another way we can pray. We could pray for what Jesus might want to do in any particular situation. We could pray asking what Jesus wants us to do in a particular situation. Notice what Jesus says. He gives them an imperative command. It's an impossible command. You give them something to eat. Wait, 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 what? Us? Mark says there are 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Imagine the subway order. We'd like to order 10,000 subs, please, and fast. Right? Imagine that. Why would Jesus say such a ridiculous thing? Well, first, because he knows something they don't know. We'll talk about that in just a minute. 
But second, I think, because he wants them to participate in what he's going to do. I think he wants them to participate in the miracle that's about to happen. I think you could say it like this. I think he wants them to participate in answering their own prayer. Let me say that again. I think he wants them to participate in answering their own prayer. Some of you may know the name Tony Campolo, a well-known Christian writer and speaker over the years. Um, I heard him tell a story years ago about a time he was invited to speak at a large gathering of Christian women, uh, several hundred women at one time. And right before he got up to deliver the keynote address, the leader of the group said to him, uh, said publicly, uh, we've, had a re- we've had a prayer request come in from a missionary we're supporting overseas who has a need for a certain orphanage for children uh, for funds. So I'd like to ask Dr. Campolo to pray for that, that God would answer that need before he speaks. And when Tony got to the platform, he said, thank you for that. Uh, I'd like not to pray exactly that way. Here's what I'd like to pray. He said, I think there's enough resources right here in the room. I think you ladies have enough cash right in your purses that you can answer this need right now. I'd like to pray that way. He prayed that, and then he took up an offering. And they more than met the financial need of that missionary out on the field. Finally, then, we come to the miracle. The disciples come back with five loaves and two fish. Modern translation, two McDonald's fish sandwiches, right? John tells us in his gospel that the five loaves and two fish came from one boy. One boy's sack lunch for 5,000 men. Who knows how many women and children? Now, a couple things here. It occurs to me, and this may just be me, but I was thinking about this. I was thinking about the numbers of people who followed him around to that side of the lake, and I'm thinking that can't possibly be all the food that was present in that crowd, right? You're telling me that not one person of the thousands even brought so much as an apple or a pomegranate? I don't think so. I think some of those people were holding back for themselves. That's what I think. That's just me. And if the five loaves and two fish came from one boy's sack lunch, Jesus, I think, is teaching us something very profound. Here's a question. Why did Jesus need the five loaves and the two fish? That doesn't really make any sense. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He has just demonstrated his authority and his power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise a dead girl from death back to life. He's the God who provided manna in the wilderness. He could have caused 10,000 pizzas to fall out of the sky if he wanted to. What's he need with five loaves and two fish? What's he need with a sack lunch? What is Jesus teaching us about himself? What's he trying to teach us about the gospel? What's he trying to teach us about the kingdom? Here's what I think. I think he's teaching us that we all have something to give, no matter how small. He's teaching us that he is able to multiply what we bring, however meager, because he is the bread of life, which he says just a couple of chapters later. Mark tells us that they ate and all were satisfied. And that word satisfied means filled fattened, gorged. That's what it means. Here's the point. The king's command leads to the king's multiplication. But he wants us to participate in what he's doing. Just this past week, uh, Pastor Jeff shared uh, with all our preaching team an email he got from Aaron Wise, who leads our Shepherd's Heart Ministry. 
Uh, we talk about Shepherd's Heart quite a bit. It's a long email, but it's so appropriate. I think she had read ahead in her, her uh, Mark journal and knew what we were going to preach on. So here's the, what I'm going to read almost all the email word for word that she sent. I think you'll see the point. This is from Aaron. God is so good to Shepherd's Heart. We serve hundreds of people that come in weekly for food. We've made some great friends, and our favorite part of serving them is building our relationships with them. Last summer, we started making dinner for families that come in to shop every Monday and Thursday evening, all with the goal of being able to sit and eat with our guests and cultivate that relationship. With numbers fluctuating frequently, our team became nervous, wondering if we would have enough to serve to everyone that came in for dinner. The second dinner we hosted last summer, one of our guests came to me and was so thankful that we, well, that we were doing this for them. And she said, if I had the resources, I would be happy to make dinner for everyone. We asked her what her specialty would be. She said she loved to cook ribs. I kind of laughed and thought that was setting the bar a little bit high for what we would be serving. Wouldn't you know that the very morning she offered to do that, a huge donation of ribs came in. Mind you, this isn't the kind of large donation we typically receive. We were able to supply her with the ribs, and she brought back the most delicious, plentiful bounty of ribs. I don't believe any of us know if there were any loaves or fishes left over, but I can tell you that not one rib was left, but everyone had plenty. Now, that's an amazing story. It's a shepherd's heart story, and Aaron claims to see that like every month, maybe every week. But then she goes on in the email. She says, we see this kind of lavish provision from God often in shepherd's heart. Chapel Street families can sign up to prepare meals for the evening. I tell them to make enough to feed about 30 people. Many nights when droves of folks come in, I look down at what we are serving and I know it won't be enough. And then guess what happens? A different Chapel Street family will walk in with a second dinner prepared saying, oops, I thought I was on schedule to make dinner tonight. I guess you'll have two dinners to serve. And I smile and just laugh. Why was I worried? God will provide. How far does God want to share these resources he blesses our pantry with? Let me tell you about a few. Here's what she says. Beyond the 12 to 1,400 people we are serving every month, we make deliveries to Lazarus House, Wayside Cross, Life Spring, and Naomi House. We have heard from several schools that many students are in need of healthy snacks and don't have resources to obtain them. We are donating items to seven schools in Montgomery, Geneva, and West Chicago. Lastly, every Thursday, we reach out to seniors in our area that have no family and can't drive. We prepare boxes and deliver them to their homes. I don't know how far-reaching God intends for our resources to go, I can tell you it's a joy and a blessing to be part of seeing how he orchestrates the blessings that pour in and how he meets all the needs going out. Now, we all know that Shepherd's Heart is a wonderful expression of the compassion and generosity of our king, and we as a church family get to participate in that. But then I went back and read through her email carefully. It struck me that Mark says there were 12 from five loaves, and two fish, there were 12 baskets of broken leftovers afterward. And when I went back and read Aaron's email carefully, I started to count all the ways the extra food that is donated to, to Shepherd's Heart is given away again. And here's what I counted. Uh, Lazarus House, Wayside Cross, Life Spring, Naomi's House, that's four. And then there were seven schools, that's 11. And then there were the seniors who can't drive, they hit me, that's 12. Twelve baskets of leftovers. I, don't, I know that's not really a direct connection, but I just started laughing like, who would ever guess that? Sometimes we look at the world around us. The big world around us, we watch the news, and we, the needs are just overwhelming in the world. Sometimes we look at our local area. 
just our local community. We think the same thing. The needs are just overwhelming. We think, what could I possibly do? What can I possibly do that makes any difference to the overwhelming needs in the world? It's just a drop in a bucket. But Jesus is teaching us in this story, those are not the right questions to ask. The right questions to ask are, what do I have that I can bring to my king? What do I have? What do we have? What do you have that you can bring to the king? No matter how small, that box of cereal you drop off at Shepherd's Heart, that, that time you give to serving kids' ministries, <coughs> the generosity you display in your giving week by week, the phone call or the visit you make to the person who's alone, what do you have to bring to our king? And the second question is, what are you willing to bring to our king? Jesus says, bring what you have to me. Put it in my hands, and I will multiply it beyond your wildest imagination. We bow with me for prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you today for your word. Thank you for this ancient story that most of us learned in Sunday school. And we think of it as a miracle, and it is a miracle story. It's also a challenge. Thank you for your care. When we are tired or discouraged, you offer us rest. Thank you for your compassion. We're also like that crowd in that we need a shepherd too. Thank you for your command because we all have something to offer, something to give. Teach us to entrust to you what we have <clears throat> so that you can multiply it for your kingdom purposes. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.